Hey, uh, my name is Lou Dangzal and I'm an immigration lawyer here in Toronto. Thanks for listening in. Thanks for watching. Uh, I have here with me my colleague, Will Tao. Um, who needs not a lot of introduction because he's been around and we're going to break the ice right away. But Will, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Will Tao. I'm an immigration and refugee lawyer based out here in Vancouver. Uh, I'm grateful to be practicing uh, on the unceded and stolen territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tooth nations. Uh, I also recently learned of a new nation, the, the Keke Nation, uh, which I should be recognizing as I recently moved and relocated to Burnaby. So that's where my hometown is. Um, now, and I'm really grateful to be on this podcast, and I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it and really excited for, for what's to come. LJ, tell me about where, where, you, where are you situated? I think it's important yes. to recognize Indigenous lands. And so yeah, I, I'm that. actually based out in the greater Toronto area. I'm specifically in the city of Mississauga, and I would like to acknowledge that we are on borrowed and stolen lands from the uh, Mississaugas of the New Credit um, uh, First Nations here in Ontario. Uh, and uh, that uh, we do recognize that immigration plays a very critical role in the settler colonialism history of Canada. Exactly. And I think both our practices, and I think is a theme of this podcast, and, and who those are with, to those who are listening, we want to reflect on the history of immigration, the history of exclusion, and, and, and the backs off whose lands uh, have been colonized. And, and that's really important as we discuss the issues that we're going to be discussing, uh, but in a different way. So LJ, tell me about how did we first meet and how did we come up with this idea to do a podcast? Let's let's break down the, the story. That's a good one. 2013, it was my first year in law school and I saw your name uh, first time around. It was with the Asian Law Student Society. I was mm -hmm. at a pub just across the University of Ottawa. We were having our meet and greet. I don't think you were actually there, but I mm -hmm. did hear your name. You were, uh, I believe, on a letter of exchange, letter of permission with the University of British Columbia at the time. You're I was in China, actually. I was in China. China. I was in okay. Chongqing, China. That's where that's I even met better. my spouse, too. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that, but that's where I was. Yeah, and, but I, I heard of you as well through the grapevine. Uh, it's a very similar story. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, yeah. it's a very, very tight community. The Asian Law Student Society over the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Law. Um, I was in my first year and uh, Will was on exchange, uh, living the life out in China. Uh, but uh, I, I believe he was one of the execs over at uh, the ALSS. And uh, eventually I uh, followed his footsteps and became co-president with one of my um, best buds in law school, Tay Chong. And uh, now she's in Ottawa. She's still in Ottawa. Now I'm here in Toronto, uh, Mississauga specifically. Uh, so yeah, that's how we met initially, like indirectly. But then, you know, a few years down the road, when we were both lawyers, um, you know, obviously you became a lawyer first. Uh, I ended up at the uh, CBA or Canadian Bar Association uh, conference, national conference in Winnipeg, and um, I think I volunteered to be um, your Twitter buddy for uh, the French uh, yes. uh, Twitter account. And I was social media coordinator and I was struggling. I was like, we need someone in French. My French is <laughs> French has been my worst subject. Shout out to all those who are struggling with French. I know English is hard enough for many people, but French is, is a very difficult language. I know LJ is, is incredible at, at both languages, um, definitely an asset. Uh, but thank you. You saved, you saved me that conference. Well, you saved me a lunch at that day. I mean, we <laughs> went to Jollibee. I enjoyed my um, spaghetti and my chicken joy. I hope you yes. did Yes. But that wasn't your first foray into Jollibee. You were the you were actually the one who invited me to Jollibee. How, yes. how come you knew about Jollibee? So this was from the Philippines back in 20, oh, I can't even remember the day. I, I believe it was 2010 or 2011 
when I was in the Philippines and, and I, I never heard of this place. I, I came across this logo and I was like, there must be something special here. And yes, <laughs> call, call me Jollibee's uh, convert. I love Jollibee's. I think it's one of the best uh, chains. <laughs> I know there's there's mixed opinions on Jollibee's, but you know we're gonna we're gonna talk a lot about food on this podcast. So yes. for those who are listening after a tough days at work or uh, before before supper, as right now I think it's right before dinner for me. I know it's later for you in in, in Toronto, uh, but uh, yeah, food is a big part of it, and Jollibee's brought us together. So thank <laughs> Jollibee's. So. Uh, we wanted to give a shout out uh, before we begin this podcast uh, to someone that's very special to us, uh, a professor, uh, Professor Jamie Liu at the University of Ottawa, Jamie Chai and Liu, who uh, with her podcast, uh, what was the podcast called again, LJ? Migration Conversations. Migration Conversations has really inspired us. I know we're both big listeners of that. We're big listeners of Borderlines. Uh, and we thought that there was space for us to do a podcast ourselves. So Absolutely. I mean, uh, you were mentioning uh, offhand before this conversation today that uh, a lot of the podcasts, the uh, YouTube channels that uh, are run by lawyers and immigration professionals uh, alike uh, are, are often too academic. And uh, sadly, some of them are also very too sales pitchy. Um, it's not that we're not going to do a lot of those topics. This is a very large umbrella. Um, what we're going to do, though, is we want to talk about immigration and migration writ large and in a very broad sense, but at the same time, make it accessible. Exactly. So that's what I came up with Imlight. And the meaning of Imlight is actually a play on words. So uh, in many immigration decisions with an immigration decision maker, either at, when refusing an application or uh, in court or, you know, there's always this in light of all circumstances. <laughs> We've considered everything. And therefore, we are, in most cases, refusing, but in some cases, you know, allowing cases. So we wanted to play on that word, uh, that wording, and, and, and call it in light, to shed light on the circumstances and the issues in Canadian immigration, while taking a bigger cultural element and, and placing that in the forefront as well. So... If you're one of those um, immigrants who came to Canada or who are, you know, still planning on coming to Canada, that's sort of, um, you know, we, we're trying to design this podcast uh, for you, essentially, something that you can listen on your way to work uh, while you're driving, taking transit, or even, uh, you know, while having dinner. Um, you know, the idea is that you're, you're going to pick up on topics on immigration, but not just about immigration, also about life um, as an immigrant. As you know, Will, you know that I, I actually arrived in Canada not too long ago, um, 11 years actually, um, in a few weeks. Um, wow, congratulations. Time. Thanks. Yeah. Um, it was an exciting time. Also a lot of anxiety, to be honest. Um, you know, a new chapter in your life, a new country, um, a lot of unknowns. So um, mm. you're going to get a lot of personal stuff from me. I, I guess hopefully that'll be some form of draw. Uh, at the end of the day, we just want to be relatable. Um, you know, when we share our experiences, when we talk about immigration law from a high level perspective, but we want to, you know, relate it to people when it's where it's actually relatable and something that you can chew on uh, and understand very quickly. Absolutely. And you're going to see from future episodes, either it's us talking or we're going to invite some guests. These will be guests that you won't find on any other podcast and any other immigration uh, audio or, or whatnot. Um, we're going to do things differently. We, we believe that following immigration is almost like following a sports team. You want to be passionate about it. You want to know the ins and outs, but you also want to know the stories behind the stories 
uh, you know, who's coming in, who, who, who has had to unfortunately leave Canada. We're going to hopefully have these people on our show as well, individuals who are caught in the middle. I know my own family's history, uh, tying to what you've spoken to, Lou, uh, is directly related to immigration. I was a product of immigrants. I was born in Victoria, British Columbia myself, uh, but my parents, uh, my father, late father, immigrated in 1987, I believe, right after Expo 86 uh, to uh, British Columbia. So that journey and that August journey of arriving with just $60 in his pocket and, and building a family from scratch, facing racism and discrimination along the way, often these stories that were unspoken. That is what we want to highlight on this podcast as well. In addition to all of the changes in law that I know some of our more nerdy friends will be very interested in. So a little mix of everything. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. We wanted to create a podcast for us by us. We already were having this conversation once a week anyway, so we're like, why don't we just record it? And, and hopefully some of you will come along and listen uh, and join us. We also know that in, in light of us trying to be lighthearted at times, there's going to be a mix of heaviness as well. There will be laughs, but there might be tears. There may be shared stories, memories, uh, but some of them will bring up uh, trigger points for individuals. So we do want to give a trigger warning for those moments. We'll try our best to do so. We want this to be accessible. Uh, but we realize we're living in really complex times in a complex uh, mix of diaspora communities. And that's our goal, shedding light on those stories, bringing in our lived experiences and, and our experiences with the process ourselves and with our loved ones and family members. So LJ, um, we're going to enter now our first segment and we're very excited for this segment. Uh, just recently, I was on the Mark Holpe podcast, his video cast actually, that was all stream live on YouTube uh, called the Canadian Immigration Institute talking about international students. And thank you so much, Mark, for bringing me on. Uh, one of the major lessons I, I got from attending that podcast and speaking to Mark uh, were the number of individuals interested in what's going on in their country of citizenship with processing of applications. So the fact that they want to know how to apply for study permit and what the chances of success are. We know that chances of success are often exploited by different uh, third parties. They say they know, you know 90%, 100%, but people want the real stats and want to know where they're coming from. So we thought, why don't we share this on our inaugural pilot episode? And in a segment, we're gonna call the Data Drop Dorkout. I really like that title for this segment. It's, it's perfect. That's basically it. Because if you look at the raw data, honestly, you'll probably um, black out because uh, it is quite the data drop. Um, I did what's called an access to information request to Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada, uh, asking essentially for data about study permits. So um, I asked for data from 2016 to present, and they were able to provide 2016 until November 30, 2020. And what we found out was really interesting. Uh, it, it comprised of about 200 pages or, or so. Um, it covered all countries, and uh, they gave us information about study permit approval rates, refusal rates, raw data on how many study permits were actually issued by country of citizenship. So there's a lot of tables. Uh, there's a lot of data to parse through, unfortunately. And uh, um, that data was released to us not too long ago, just last week, and uh, we managed to scrunch up a few uh, tables, a few graphs for um, essentially for our viewers today. And for those who are listening to us, what we'll do is we'll put a link to the description where you can access the tables that we prepared for this particular podcast episode. Um, what it is, is that we selected a few countries of interest 
And um, we basically, the first slide talks about uh, the big picture, study permits in Canada. Writ large, um, basically, there are almost a million uh, study permits that were issued between 2016 and 2020. Specifically, it was 859,645. So Nicholas Kung, who's a journalist over at the Toronto Star, regularly writes about immigration, uh, you know, in Canada, different topics from family class to economic class immigration. Uh, what's interesting is last year, uh, they published a three-part story where they basically disclosed that there's about 500,000 actively studying international students in Canada who are holding study permits. Now, through this ATIP disclosure, as you can see, there were about 860,000, to be specific, 859,000 study permits that were issued between 2016 to November 30, 2020. And that includes the time of COVID, surprisingly. But, uh, you know, as you will see in the country uh, specific stats, there's actually going to be, um, you know, a, a drop in uh, the, the number of study permits, depending on what country we're talking about. But even with the raw data, you can see that in 2019, there were 244,000 study permits issued uh, across the board down to 51,300 uh, study permits. And that's a significant drop. That's about 20% of what uh, was issued the year before, essentially a, a, an 80% drop, which I did the back of hand calculation, Will, and I think I tweeted mm -hmm. about it. It's about $1.3 billion in lost tuition alone. And that's on the conservative wow. end. Um, so and that's why schools have been shutting down, right? Like we've seen a lot of school shutdowns and, uh, you know, international tuition oftentimes is about four times more than domestic tuition, and it covers many of the uh, domestic programs. So that that must be a lot of money that that that's out of international tuition, out of the pockets of these schools now. Absolutely, and uh, there's an interesting trend uh, since 2019. The Gane the government of Canada actually take cognizance or recognize that there is that issue that a lot of our um, post secondary institutions are becoming too reliant on international students. More on that later. Uh, but uh, I think a lot of our listeners and viewers are probably going to be interested in the breakdown of the stats here. Um, what we have here is basically a rundown of countries, and we're going to go through each and one of them. I have about 21 countries listed. Wow. Uh, I have China here. Um, it's no surprise that uh, it comprises one of the largest um, uh, populations mm -hmm. of international students in Canada. Uh, in 2019, the banner year of 2019, there were 29,308 uh, study permits that were issued to uh, citizens of China, the People's Republic of China. And then in 2020, up to November 30, it dropped down to 6,500. That wow. is a pretty significant and sharp drop. And as you can see, that pattern is repeated all throughout for different countries, except for certain countries. And that's why I shift to the second country here now, which is France, from 93 to 98. And you know, a lot wow. of people need to understand that uh, there's actually, um, you know, a, a big portion of our study permit uh, holders in Canada are actually from France, and mm -hmm. a lot of people go to Quebec because France and Quebec have an a, an agreement about a recognition, mutual recognition of credentials, mutual recognition of education programs. So there is a big uh, push and pull, I should say, to Canada, specifically to Quebec for French nationals. Mm -hmm. uh, but interestingly, even if the numbers drop for France, you'll see that there was actually an increase in the approval rates. Mm -hmm. That's uh, very interesting. And China, you saw a, a, a drop, is that correct? There's a drop in the number of applications, but at the same time, there's rates. also a 10% drop in the approval rates. 
Wow. And then do you think that's because of the, the relationships right now, that the sort of challenging diplomatic times between China and Canada? Is that possibly to do for this? It's quite possible, but we really can't tell, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. We only have superficial data at this point. But I'll get to a graph later, which gives a bigger a bird's eye view picture of what's going on. So moving on to France, just like quickly glancing at it. So those are the numbers. Mm-hmm. They're hovering at around 8,000 to 10,000. But you'll see that in 2020, there was a significant drop, almost a 40, 50% drop in uh, essentially applicants uh, from France. And then in mm-hmm. India, uh, what's interesting here is there was a significant drop actually from 64 to 43%. So mm-hmm. from a 36% refusal rate d- up to uh, 57%, that's pretty significant. Mm-hmm. That and is, that's very significant. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and India, if I'm not mistaken, is our largest uh, international student sourcing country. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a really good point to um, underscore, Will, because if you look at the graph here in front of you, and for our listeners, for 2016, um, there were about 43,780 study permits issued to citizens of India. The following year was 71,866. Then in 2018, 84,827. Then in 2019, another banner year, it's 111,142. Um, international wow. students from India coming in that year. So that's pretty mm-hmm. significant. And then fast forward to 2020, it dropped from 111,000 to 27,000. Pretty significant drop. Yeah. With, with so, a large refusal rate, and I, w- I would mention that we, we have other stats, which hopefully we can share on a future episode, but it shows that misrepresentation findings are also going up. There's a lot of scrutiny around Indian study permits, especially uh, for, the, for the documentation and uh, issues with, for example, company spouses. So what does this, kind of, what, what does this data help us or, or guide us to, to, to thinking about when it comes to uh, Canada's international student strategy? So it gives us a bird's eye view perspective. The aggregate data always gives mm. us better context. And uh, for a lot of those who follow Star Trek <laughs> or pop culture reference, context is king. So we need to understand where these numbers stand from a bird's eye view perspective. But at the same time, Will is right. You need to drill down into country specific realities and the visa offices specifically. For example, in India, there are several visa offices and you know they're not all created equal when it comes to stats. So uh, we'll mm-hmm. drill down onto those in a future episode as Will said. Excellent. And next I see on your uh, list, you have the Philippines, which I know is a country very close near dear <laughs> to your heart. Uh, right. I'm originally from the Philippines, guys, if that wasn't clear Uh, enough at the beginning. Um, And uh, yeah, in the Philippines, it's very significant. Uh, Not a lot of uh, applicants to begin with compared to China or India, obviously, or even France. But there is a stark increase uh, from 2016 to 2019. Again, the banner year that we should be referring to. Um, From 2016, there were 1,229 applicants approved up to about 3,000 applicants approved in 2018. There was a slight decline in 2019 for the approval rates, but the numbers increased to 5,150. And it sort of coincides with the Government of Canada's strategy to diversify its sourcing of international students. Because as we'll mention traditionally, Canada sources its international students from two large countries, India and China. Uh, but then uh, because of the relationship with China, Canada started to reevaluate where it stands and they saw it as a security risk of sorts. 
that uh, ca uh, Canadian universities are too dependent on international students. So from a risk perspective, they just want to make sure that if one country decides to sort of impose an embargo uh, on international students, because it is a large form of export, if you think about it, um, that Canada's e educational system will not collapse as a result. So it's a matter of mm. diversifying uh, the mm. risks associated with taking in so many international students. And um, so what's interesting about this is that, um, you know, the next stats actually, uh, Algeria um, is a country that actually stands in stark contrast with um, uh, France, even to China, India, and the Philippines. This, the approval rates are actually very low. As you can see in the table before you, um, and for those listeners, from 2016, uh, the approval rate was 23%, a refusal rate of 77%, and basically stayed around the same range, from a range of 76 to 85%, 85% being from 2020. Um, there was a significant drop on applications and a significant drop in approvals in 2020. However, the rates for refusal still increased. I mean, statistically, I'm not sure if it's going to be a significant increase, but it, uh, you know, it certainly is, uh, you know, a tangible, you know, uh, a tangible effect of uh, COVID. But at the same time, if you look at the previous year's statistics, 2,400 down to 1,000, that's still pretty significant from a, you know, purely economic standpoint. And uh, I want to quickly go through some other countries here, Bangladesh, for example, Another Commonwealth country that Canada is trying to focus on to uh, increase its uh, pool of international students and diversify the sources. Um, interestingly, from 2016, you'll see a steady decline. Um, there was a 53% approval rate in 2016, went up a bit in 2017, but from then steadily declined and sharply declined in 2020 down to 26%. So from a high of 56 down to 26 that's a 30 percentage point drop. Granted, the wow. number of the, the raw numbers for the study permits, not that significant from a you know big picture perspective, but the percentages are pretty telling, Will. Yeah, and, and I'm and I'm seeing a trend already of here. I mean, you just mentioned Algeria, which is an African country, but also French speaking, which suggests to me that that would be a, a country that is targeted for for international students, given the, the focus on Francophone students uh, in Canada. Uh, but African countries with very high refusal rates, also Asian countries, you know, the Bangladesh, uh, I, I think I saw the same thing for Nepal. I don't, believe, I don't know if you have on your stats. Uh, certain Asian countries, not the East Asian, Japan and Korea, which have the opposite. Um, but you definitely have this big contrast. Tell me a bit about Jamaica though. I think Jamaica is a really interesting story, isn't it? I'm looking at all the stats here, but I think, you know, I, obviously Germany is, is, is you know high, high level yeah. approvals almost 99 percent Cameroon and Africa a high level of refusals but what happened to Jamaica it seems like the flip so so to speak okay this is uh you know if this was a CNN election thing and be you know this country flip has this yeah. is, state has turned from red to to blue what, what's Absolutely. going on I mean you know this visualization in front of us is pretty much you know that's it it really speaks for itself doesn't it mm. and for our listeners out there in podcast format what we're seeing is from 2019 a banner year of 73 percent approval rate and you know that's a very comfortable number to be in if you're a country down to 27 percent of approval wow and there's also a significant drop in the number of applications for that year will 
And um, it might be COVID related. I mean, it could be the Canadian government actively discouraging people to come to Canada. But that being said, there are all these sorts of policies that were implemented during 2020, if you recall, that allowed students, international students, to actually com commence or start their studies online, even if they're not in Canada yet, even if their study permits have not been approved yet, or what they're saying, first stage approval. Um, what are your thoughts on that, actually, on the staging approval and then people paying like thousands and thousands, and yeah. thousands of dollars? Initially, I thought what this was 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 a band aid for for the schools that were struggling because of COVID. And my my own prediction was that was that many uh, uh, that many of the students would be eventually refused on the second stage. Uh, but I didn't expect it to come in the manner that it did. Like it seems like for the many students that I've heard, they were approved in the first stage, uh, but the second stage actually revisited their eligibility in the first place. So we're starting to see some very, very bizarre refusals that aren't really following the, the initial program. So I wouldn't be surprised if some of these decisions end up in our, in our courts uh, sometime soon. And we're going to have segments that not on this episode, but on future episodes about what's going on in the court with study permit cases. So I'm really excited to talk about those. That's something I, 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 I see on my end. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting because like just like trying to look at it from a perspective from the ground. If I were an international student, I'd paid, let's say, twenty five thousand to a university in Canada to start my semester, my first semester, only to find out later that I'll be refused by immigration. What's going to happen? I mean, yeah, you know, these are real consequences, and um, unfortunately, uh, we're starting to see more and more of that now. While things are, you know, starting to, you know, move along in the study permit processing, uh, and Jamaica is uh, not an exception, and in fact, they're feeling the brunt of it. I mean, it's no secret uh, this this Caribbean country is majority uh, black population. Mm -hmm. uh, Will, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I think it's it's clear and. In, in... If you want to go on Twitter, I actually tweeted a picture late last night with the global map showing, uh, and I actually, as a, as a, in a bit of irony, I put uh, the high approval countries in black and the other ones are, are lighter shades. It shows that anti-blackness still reigns supreme in the approval process, in the processing of applications. When you are from African countries, when you are from countries uh, in the Middle East and Central Asia, uh, predominantly with uh, obviously countries that have poor uh, relationships with Canada, diplomatic relationships, but perhaps also countries where Canada is less certain and has historically had less immigrants and or put up historical barriers against those immigrants, we're seeing refusals of study permits. And I know it shouldn't be surprising, but in today's day and age, when on one hand we're talking about all the anti-racist efforts we're making right. and how multiculturalism is Canada's thing, uh, it's still a stark reminder that we have a long way to go and that there, there are existing biases that will continue uh, until we take some major systemic action against them, right? Ma major change. Um, the other thing I wanted to share uh, from these stats that I think is, is very fascinating is actually around the SDS, the study direct stream, the student direct stream. So you have countries like Vietnam, Morocco, Philippines, India, um, China, these are all SDS countries, um, but you're still seeing very, very high uh, refusal rates out of these countries. I mean, think of, look at Vietnam here, um, you're still hovering about a 50, 50, I mean, 60, 40, 59 approval, 41 refusal in the year before, 51% approval, 49 refusal. Uh, but that's not a, a great percentage from a country that, again, 
Asian, uh, should fall under SDS, some French speakers as well coming out of Vietnam. Right. Uh, seems like a country that Canada would definitely be targeting as sort of the next big Asian thing as well in terms of international students. But we're, we're not seeing that in the stats. We're still seeing a, a high refusal rate. So that's very interesting to me. Just for, you know, just like a little bit of a sidebar for those who are not familiar with the student direct stream, essentially it's a program that uh, Canada set a service standard of 20 days turnaround for the applications, uh, as long as you fulfill certain requirements such as a high English language test score for admissions to college or post-secondary education in Canada, as long as you can put in a deposit of a minimum of $10,000 uh, Canadian into uh, what's called a guaranteed investment certificate. And depending on the country you're in, they'll have different mechanisms for it, specific banks and where you are, but only specific countries are actually um, you know, going to be eligible for that. And even if you're a citizen of that particular country and you're not applying through that particular office, you might not necessarily be eligible for it. So Will was right to underscore that, um, you know, there is a certain expectation that you uh, tend to like feel if you're saying, oh, I'm applying under the student, student direct stream, wherein I'm saying to the government that I already have the funds, I've already paid for the entire years of tuition, I already have like extremely good English or French, and yet you still get refused. Of course, there's going to be refusal, they always say it's case by case. But you know, it's just an interesting um, piece yeah. of tidbit here, because uh, if you look at these slides that we have for you, um, we've actually noted the countries that are TRV required, and a TRV is a temporary resident mm -hmm. visa for some, some countries. In order to visit Canada as a visitor, you need to have a, a visa foil in your passport. So if you're applying for a study permit to Canada, you're, you're going to get a visa foil on top of your study permit that will be issued at, issued at the port of entry. Um, so it's interesting that if you look at it, if you parse through the stats here, Will, you'll see that the higher the approval, sorry, the higher the approval rates, the tendency is that these, these countries yeah. will be TRV exempt, like Mexico, yeah. for example. That, that right. makes a lot of that makes a lot of sense, right? Because if you're coming to Canada uh, on an ETA uh, and you're able to get one quite quickly, a it can build travel history, but also um, it can show you you'll you know if you can enter Canada easily, it's easier to leave the borders. And I think that's a big big barrier right now with temporary resident visas as well is that they're getting refused often for uh, under uh, sections where they believe the individual will not leave Canada at the end of their stay. And for international students, that's Regulation Two One Six which I know we'll probably have episodes on that regulation right. alone because it's super exciting mm -hmm. and how to fill, how to even meet the requirements uh, of that. Uh, but I think that that's an, a very important point that you just mentioned that there is seems to be a dis discriminatory barrier for individuals who have to apply in countries where they are required to hold a TRV to enter Canada. Right. I mean, you mentioned it over at Mark Holhi's um, show. Um, <laughs> Raj Sharma, another immigration lawyer, said that how do you build travel history to prove that you've been traveling around? You get need to, you need to get a visa, but then how do you need to get how do you get a visa? You need to travel, something yeah. along those lines, right? Exactly. Uh, but anyway, just parsing through some of the last few pages here, uh, Japan's interesting, right? Uh, don't you think that it has this high approval rate? Mm -hmm. So you were saying I mean, something about East Asian countries, um, you know, China. Yeah, I, I think Japan, Japan and Korea. Korea. I mean, I think it, it, it's a it's a sign of the strong and historical diplomatic ties between Canada and, and Japan and, and Korea. I think it also goes to show that, you know, both those countries have trade agreements as well, I believe, uh, with Canada. Um, and you know, the IEC, they have IEC programs with uh, Canada and Korea has Canada-Korea free trade agreement. Uh, so there, those definitely assist a bit. Uh, and simultaneously, you know, in Vancouver, I'm seeing a lot more 
uh, Japanese and Korean students. And, and that's a wonderful thing. Uh, but some might be asking why in, in my country are the rates so different uh, between another country such as the Philippines, such as India, such as Bangladesh, when compared to Korean in Japan? Yeah. To be honest with you, I was really tempted to uh, pivot the data points here with uh, GDP uh, per capita adjusted mm. for purchasing power. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't have enough time. I'll save it for another episode. And uh, once the data that we're currently processing starts trickling in, so that'll be interesting uh, for another episode. Absolutely. So LG, uh, obviously these stats are very important for, for numerous reasons. I mean, I'll give just a couple that I can think about. One. Uh, without these stats, I think it, there is a, a ripe environment for overseas agents, uh, many of them, of course, without any sort of license, let alone never stepped in foot in Canada, peddling immigration services, uh, stating that they have a very high approval rate. And I think that these stats are good for applicants to have back pocket just to even test the authenticity of the type of services they're getting, right? If they're going to someone who's like, don't worry, you're going to have a 90% rate uh, of success out of Uzbekistan, you probably want to be like, how many Uzbekistani study permits have you applied for, right? And it gives you at least a, a marker to be like, That's, that doesn't sound right, right? Um, but uh, another thing too, I think it helps us do is to think about how to tackle for our clients some of the more difficult questions, right? And, and why is it that certain study permits in certain countries uh, are being refused? And what can we build, what can we do to help improve that situation for our clients? We might need to spend a little more time on some of these files. We may need a little more country condition evidence, uh, things that we no won't normally uh, associate with a study permit. It definitely opens up the window for advocates as well to do better advocacy for clients in historical low approval rate countries. Yeah, it's absolutely critical that people who are contemplating and coming into Canada as an international student to actually speak to immigration lawyers such as Will, for example, uh, who have the expertise and not just pull out statistics from you know random places. I mean, this is the whole point of this podcast. We're trying to shine a light into the government statistics that actually tell you a picture, that paints a picture of what it actually is. But you said something really important, Will, about specifics of a country and specifics of an individual. So while we're sharing these statistics, for example, right now I have Pakistan in front of us, um, mm -hmm. while you might be daunted by a 68% refusal rate, it might be that your factors are so strong that it's not a fair representation of your chances, isn't it? Isn't it? I think that's why it's important that you talked about the specifics of each country while we have this bird's eye view statistics, because at the end of the day, um, even if Pakistan has a 68% refusal rate, it really boils down to the individual, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and they, I mean, that's why we also call our, our podcast in light of all circumstances. Each individual is treated based on their fact, factors and their facts. Uh, and part of our jobs and, and our day-to-day -day life is to help a client put their best facts forward and explain the facts that might not be as uh, strong. Uh, and um, unfortunately, many individuals abroad are working with un unauthorized or untrained or uh, individuals who, who don't have access to the type of data and the type of training that we've been uh, privileged to have access to. So we want to make this podcast something that you can listen to to get tips and advice on your own situation 
and also be a positive influence around to, to your circle and, around, and those around you to encourage them uh, to get the proper advice and not just jump forward on, on some promise or perhaps an agent making money because a school is paying them to get you into a seat there. So that's a big part of our, our podcast as well as that public education piece. Although we've been heavy, so we want to make sure it's entertaining as well. Right. We're not all about the heavy stuff here, but uh, one final heavy stuff that I wanted to share tonight are four slides. I've specifically identified four countries Mm. of interest here, India, the Philippines, Vietnam, and China. Why? Why is it? It's because India and China have been traditionally the sources for Canada for international students, as we, we all know. Uh, but Canada's trying to diversify its pot, as I mentioned earlier. So two of those countries that Canada's actively campaigning to get more international students from are the Philippines and Vietnam. But what's interesting here is that I, I graphed um, the, uh, the data that we got from immigration in terms of like the drop. So instead of approval rates, what we're looking now here are basically the change in the number of permits issued. So for mm-hmm. India, for example, uh, you know, from 2018, uh, there was an increase of 31% in the number of permits issued in 2019. But from 2019 to 2020, there was a 75% decline. So that is wow. significant. Um, and the raw numbers there are 111,142 study permits issued in 2019 down to 27,468. So that's, uh, if I'm doing back of hand math here, that's 25% of uh, what used to be, you know, tuition that would flow into our DLIs, whether public or private, that would support uh, post-secondary educations here to the benefit of Canadians, in fact. Um, Mm -hmm. And same story that is repeated over in the Philippines, a 58% decline, lots of lost tuition right there. Same for Vietnam, but Vietnam is an interesting case study because as Will mentioned earlier, um, it's one of those up and coming East Asian countries, but at the same time, it's one of those countries where you actually find a a Francophone population, Uh, but you're seeing a decline starting from 2017. I think this is worth an investigation. Unfortunately, with the data that we have, we can't really see what's going on. I think we need to break it down further. Where are they going, for example? What kind of programs are they pursuing? Maybe if we see the stats at that level, we'll get a you know better sense of what's going on for Vietnam. And yes, that is a, an upcoming topic for another podcast. And Absolutely. finally here for China, um, and Will, you touched on this earlier, the relationship, diplomatic relationships yeah. matter. And so it's not just on the demand side, it's also on the supply side. My understanding is that there's also a, a bit of a resentment in China to sending their students to uh, countries such as the US and uh, Canada. It's no secret that uh, the relationships are not very good at this time, but you're seeing a steady decline from 2016, yeah. albeit very small, very marginal at that point. But of course, for COVID, there's a massive decline uh, from 29,308 in 2019 issued down to 6,560 in 2020. And who knows what 2021 is going to look like. But just based on the numbers, one would suspect if this vaccine, uh, or if, I think I'll call it vaccines now because there's various vaccines, yeah. but if COVID dissipates, which we all hope it does, schools will need to start up again and, and, and flourish again. They're gonna need international students. Mm-hmm. So those numbers have to change. 
But if you were advising the government right now, where would you focus the attention? Like, are there certain countries that you see on the up and up? Or are there certain directions you think they should go? Um, I mean, those are all things, I don't know if we can all tackle it in this, in this one episode, uh, but I think looking at the statistics is a, definitely a, a, a very good place to start and, and to look at the trends and where we should target international students from. I mean, this is a really good starting point, as you said. Um, I suspect that the government is going to look at statistics when it comes to COVID outcomes. I think mm -hmm. this will be on top of mind. Um, the Canadian government is very much aware that our post-secondary institutions here in Canada are very much dependent on international students. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, on the numbers alone, uh, essentially international students pay three times as much as what a domestic student would pay. On that number alone, international students essentially subsidize Canadians who are going mm -hmm. to college or university. So yeah. Canada needs to understand and put together a strategy, and it understands that it needs to put together a strategy that would welcome international students. And today mm -hmm. we're actually starting to mm -hmm. see, you know, elements of that mm -hmm. coming along. Um, yeah. It's really dependent on the vaccination timelines. It's also going to be very dependent on the outcomes for vaccinations yeah. abroad, for example. Uh, one of my yeah. clients are actually, uh, they're based out of Singapore. They're very much keen on, you know, what the vaccine timelines in Canada is going to be like, because it is only at that point that they will make a decision uh, whether to send students over to Canada or not. Um, the, granted, a lot of the universities, I'm pretty sure you've seen it in the news, they're already starting preparation for a September entry. Yeah. Um, you can, you know, you can probably not blame a lot of our clients when they say, oh, um, I'm going to wait and see. Um, this is probably like, you know, a fair position to take considering how long it's been that, you know, these people are waiting. These international students have been waiting on what's going to happen next. So a lot of people are essentially deferring their start date. But, you know, if these are the same people who are actually, you know, working to build their profile to immigrate to Canada in the future. Obviously, waiting has its costs because, you know, our immigration system is points based and age is one of those critical factors. So there's yeah. a lot at play, um, you know, just from the front end and even at the back end of it. And it's a large machine. And, you know, the government has a very critical job to play, and they're very aware of it, thankfully. Uh, but, you know, a lot of these things we have wait, we have to wait and see. Yeah. One thing I would say that the government, and I hope, uh, again, in a couple months, I, I will actually be speaking on a CBA panel with uh, my good friend, a good friend of yours as well, Ronald Lee Carey. Uh, and, and we're going to be joined by someone in IRCC. And actually, LJ, we might uh, be speaking to them a little bit earlier about some yeah. of the things that they're doing. Well, we're going to have some uh, updates about that on a future episode as well. And of course, so many things are happening, which is really exciting. Um, but what does the government do during this? Now, I'm going to call it a pandemic, which actually a term I heard in another podcast was awesome. It was a pandemic, but now it's the pandemic. Because I think that the government needs to make some key changes to the way international students are processed, mm -hmm. and more importantly, to where the money flows. Right. Uh, because until we regulate the rampant education consulting money-making industry, which is equivalent in many cases to offshoring, we've already seen uh, this come under investigation where, where they're looking into corruption, looking into fraud. Uh, in, in BC. part of it has been looked at in the context of international tuition. Um, we're seeing both tuition figures that are astronomically high, right. but we're also seeing a large portion of that tuition 
offshore to individuals who do not need to have any sort of license to practice what they practice uh, simply because the school is, is rewarding them for getting a seat in, in, in that, for, for reserving a seat and taking a seat at that institution. I think that whole system needs a rethink. And I think the government has a unique role to play with technology to create a more secure uh, platform for international students to actually make their own applications. Of course, use uh, authorized advisors, but have that direct communication stream that cuts out in essence, the middle persons who are, who I believe are oftentimes harming the system because international students are saying the tuition's too high. They're having to, you know, uh, go back home to, to, to borrow money from family, family right. which are also struggling during the pandemic. They may have to borrow and, and, and leverage against land. We've heard that from many countries and communities where literally uh, they're putting everything up uh, in order to support a kid going to school. The fact that a big portion of that's not actually going to the school itself or to the economy, I think is a very troubling and problematic uh, situation. And I think right now with some of these stats, we can really think about rebuilding for the post-pandemic using our planning skills. So I, I hope that's something the government takes into account. I know government follows us uh, and what we tweet and what we write. If you're listening government, this is one is where, where we think we need to move forward. We hope that international students get a bigger role in the CIMM. I think there should be a committee meeting on it. Um, and these stats show, they're, they're, they're fascinating stats and we need to start building the context around what that means. So after a big delve into some of those stats, uh, we now are entering our, our fun round of what we call the Lightning Round section or LRS for short. Um, and the Lightning Round is an opportunity for us to both to get to know each other better, but also for you, the listener at home, to get to know us better and engage in some conversations. We're going to talk a lot about the memories of our childhood, about things that are coming up, uh, and little details and quirks. So I think that these are some of the uh, diasporic stories that many of you have tuned in to listen to. So the first question for you, LJ, and I'm going to ask, ask you a question, and I'm going to engage with you and then uh, and share my answer as well. And then you're going to ask me a question and engage on, on my answer as well. Uh, the first question uh, of our inaugural light round section is what is your most vibrant memory of your hometown? And again, I know that hometown is a complicated word, especially for many of our listeners, uh, but I'm going to put that question to you. For those in the diaspora, that's a very tough question because, you know, what is hometown? You've really knocked that one out of the park. Well, for me, it's going to be easy. It's Christmas. Uh, for those of you who have Filipino acquaintances, you know that uh, Filipinos tend to count down to Christmas starting in September, uh, much to uh, the cringeworthiness of the, that factoid. Um, there are other aspects of my life where I would consider Singapore as a, a second home and also a hometown. Jalan Makan, which literally in Malay means food street. Uh, I remember the chicken and pork skewers, the tiger beers and the char kway tiao. That is my vibrant memory. Those are my vibrant memories of my hometowns. <laughs> Ooh. I, I want to add two things. For those who haven't watched the Anthony Bourdain episode, and I'll rest in peace, Anthony Bourdain, uh, on the Philippines, he, he actually has an episode, I think, of Parts Unknown, where he captures the Christmas in Philippine spirit. And I think that that's just a wonderful episode. And it really brought to light to me how, uh, you know, the whole act of sending money back, remittances back to the to the home country is such a powerful thing. And, and, and uh, how the importance of money and, and the, also the, the, the challenges that many Filipina, uh, Filipino uh, families have it, it with family separation. And I'm seeing that with my own clientele now, uh, which is increasingly Filipino uh, due to local engagement in the Filipino community. So I'm, I'm really, I'm glad you shared those memories. Uh, I also had similar memories when I 
Uh, I didn't go to the Philippines during Christmas, but just like walking through a night market uh, or just walking through a few streets and finding the most uh, fascinating street food. Uh, oh, the, um, the pork, the lechon. Oh, I, I am I'm immediately uh, brought back to the streets of Philippines uh, just with you sharing some of those stories. And Singapore, just the to engage with you on that one. Uh, we have that shared history. We were both students, although for myself, uh, for a much shorter time at the National University of Singapore, stayed at PGP, that's the PGP residence. Um, but we have a Singapore uh, connection as well. So I- Wait, we hold on. You went to NUS? I didn't know that. We talked about this. <laughs> we went to, yes, I went to NUS just for a short period of time. There was a summer exchange, but oh, okay. uh, the hawker centers in, 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 in Singapore, the food, uh, I'm a laksa person. That's probably one of my favorite dishes. If you call me, and I guess that kind of segues into our second question, but <laughs> that's it. Um, I'll answer it as well for myself, the, the, the most vibrant memory of my hometown. Uh, I also have a very complicated relationship with the hometown, even though I was, you know, I was born in Victoria, left at the age of two and Vancouver is, you know, in all, by all definitions, probably what I would consider my hometown. Uh, but because it was my birthplace and it will always be a part of my home. I think it's the stories of my, my mother uh, telling me about how we used to live on Mount Tomi. For those who are in Victoria, you'll know Mount Tomi well, very, very high hill. Uh, I know it's a little bit better path now, but back then I can only imagine how rough it was. Uh, but beautiful houses. Uh, we, you know, I think our family lived in the, in the basement of rich diplomats. Uh, they didn't have to pay rent, but in order to uh, you know, support my father's study, my late father's studies and, and support the family, uh, he, uh, they had to cook and clean, and they told me about back, day, back then when they had to bring groceries up the hill, and, and sometimes they couldn't carry all those groceries up, and they had to leave them on the side of the, of the of Mount Tomi. So uh, just recently, I brought my spouse back, this was pre-COVID, uh, to Mount Tomi. We walked the Mount Tomi, and you know, all the memories came, even though I don't remember them. I have shattered glass memory, like I know many uh, individuals do from, from migrant communities. Um, but just the stories and, and Victoria will always hold a special place in my heart. So shout outs to Victoria, British Columbia, the capital of, of British Columbia. Nice. Can, can I ask you the next question then? I think it's my turn, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely it is. So um, if you could never go back uh, to your homeland and you can bring one thing to Canada, um, what would it be? And you know, l let's put this extra requirement. It's got to be an item that's not available in Canada at all. Ooh. So we're talking so, about and, nostalgia here. <laughs> well, we are talking about nostalgia. Um, and, and I'll go with motherland of um, my motherland of, of China. Um, my, my parents, uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, uh, immigrated from Shanghai. But this has actually come from uh, my another adopted home. I know we talked about our several adopted homes. This is where my spouse's family is from, and this is where I went on exchange and met my spouse. So, you know, hopefully we'll get into this story one day on the episode. I think it's a pretty sweet story. Um, but it was, it, it's in Chongqing, um, and Chongqing has this amazing thing. Their, their work schedule. So that would I bring back this thing, because I think we need it now for post-COVID. But in their normal work schedule, they have two hours, two full hours from 12 to two, where they don't work. Huh. They literally built in nap time and, and relaxed time into the work schedule. They start an hour early, granted, I think most businesses start at eight, but it's eight to 12 and then two to five. Hmm. 
And from two and from 12 to two, everyone's either going for walks, everyone's like passed out, taking a nap, doing their thing. But a two hour nap in the middle of a regular workday, if that was the norm, I would 100% bring that here because I think it would re reinvigorate and re-energize all of us. I know I'm probably speaking to the wrong person right now who doesn't even know what two hours, a two hour break <laughs> looks like anymore, uh, given how busy they are, but uh, that's what I would bring. And I think it should be mandated. It should be law. Let us write the laws. Let us bring in that one piece of Chinese <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm in a restaurant, Will, where I see the yeah. other table ordering this amazing, you know, plate of, you know, this amazing dish. And I'm gonna say, yeah. I'm gonna have what he's having. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it reminds me of the siesta, um, you know, that that's, it's not really built in into certain Latin cultures, such as in Spain. Um, it's a huge cultural thing, but it's not built into the work schedule. Uh, some employers do, but it's not like, you know, 100% universal as I understand it. But, you know, that that's pretty interesting. So I'm going to try to answer that. What do I want to bring? I warned you, this is going to be corny. Um, and literally, it is corned beef. Yes. Wow, corn beef. This I don't. You're like canned corn beef, though, right? This, this is, is like canned corn corn beef. beef. This is the weird different. part. It's canned corn beef from the Philippines. It's called uh, Deli Mondo. Um, Deli Mondo. Yeah, and it's not available in North America, as far as I know. Not in Canada, anyway. And um, you know, obviously, you can't import meat products from from other countries on a personal consumption basis, even uh, because of the quarantine restrictions. And you know, quarantine is used today just for like COVID, but you know, there are sanitary measures for food products. And uh, yeah, you're not supposed to be able to, or you're not supposed to bring those things uh, over mm -hmm. to Canada. And uh, I've been trying to look for a place to buy it here. I can't, but it's so good. I can't even begin to explain it to you. I'll, I'll just have to bring you to Manila at some point so that you can try it. Is this equivalent to like spam is in, in, in Hawaii or am I just over... Listen, never, what, what do you do with this corned beef? Bam is also a part of Filipino culture. Um, I think this okay. is like one big connection or nexus between Hawaii and the Philippines. Um, there's yeah. a, actually a joke that, you know, our red blood cells, like Filipinos look like spam, slices of spam. Um, oh. it's, not, it's, it's not untrue. I mean, I do have a few cans of spam lying in the, in the <laughs> cupboard. Um, you know, so yeah. it's, it's not untrue. Um, but yeah, uh, Deli Mondo is just next level corned beef. It oh, just wow. like washes all competitors out of the, you know, yeah. there's not even a competition. It's, it's almost yeah. like it's not out of a can. Yeah. I can't explain it. Um, you'll have oh. to Google it. I'll, I'll flash it here in the video. Yeah. Anyway. Absolutely. And, and, and I think on a similar level, like um, the, the, the sausage, the homemade sausage that I'm sorry for all you vegetarians, we'll talk about vegetables too. Um, the, the sausage that my, my spouse's uh, grandmother makes is just next level. And unfortunately, similar to, I think, your corned beef, it's how do you get it across borders? And we're not about to advise on that. <laughs> we'll come up with some strategies eventually, but we're not, we're not going to talk about the importing of meat into Canada and how to, and border declarations and all that <laughs> good stuff. But, you know, some of those bites of, 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 of the home food and the home country cooking is amazing. So that actually brings us amazingly to our last question in, in this light in round. Um, I know you're probably hungry. It's been a whole work day and you probably either <laughs> skip meal or just shove some sandwich uh, quickly uh, between meetings. Uh, but what is your comfort food on a cold spring day? I don't know if it's a cold spring day in Toronto, but thank you. For, for, I mean, we've hit a bit of a cold. We had some sun, but it's been a little bit cold uh, today. 
What is that comfort food and who's making it for you? Or are you making it yourself? Uh, I, I must confess it's not made at home. Um, my usual comfort food when I'm cold is pho. Mm, there is this particular store incredible. up in Brampton that uh, seriously, it's just I can't get enough of it. And they sell it for cheap. Um, yeah. I, I'll have the P11. <laughs> P11. But, but, but in all seriousness, it's it's really good. Are you gonna give away the name of the store? Uh, it's Foamy sixty six. Uh, it's at the corner 66. of uh, Steels and the four ten. So for 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 those of you who are in the GTA who are out for good pho, this is a really good place to go to. Foamy spicy 66. spicy broth or no spicy broth. You can do spicy broth. You can do no spicy broth. I, I yeah. usually take the non-spicy one and then I add all the chili garlic oil in the world. Yes. Oh, I, yes. The, the key is, though, no sriracha, no hoisin. I'm sorry. Maybe do a little bit of dip on your on your uh, your meat or whatever. But if I see if I see you dumping that all onto your soup, you're just you just ruined it. I'm the same. I don't put hoisin, hoisin and um, uh sriracha in my my um fall oh, it's it's just the chili garlic oil you need, you need the chili garlic oil yep those are facts uh for myself uh and i am craving it now and i'll probably eat that soon but uh definitely hot pot um, oh yeah so Tongqing, that's where i went to school for a little bit and uh that's where again my spouse's family is from is the capital of hot pot there's nothing no exception don't give me that Sichuan stuff i know i'm gonna get some beef for saying that i'm on the Tongqing side of that debate um, but hot pot is just incredible and some of the hot pot you have in China where you're sitting literally on stools with like the grannies who are wearing like uniforms and like everything's pushed around in carts and uh. like there's tissue everywhere like and you're just <laughs> eating like random stuff like you'd be like I would never eat this if it wasn't in hot pot form and you throw into that magic liquid and then it becomes spicy you're sweating you're palpitating and like oh and, and it's an orchestra day, of food orgasm exactly and i think you know uh i've never unfortunately had hot pot as good as i've had back then but it always gives me something to think about and go back to so that would be my cold spring day slash cold any day uh food awesome well thank you for the lightning round that was an incredible uh opportunity to share some amazing stories and i cannot wait for the next one uh we're gonna have some even more creative stories and if you have any ideas for questions feel free to reach out to us on our socials. We're going to put the socials link uh, alongside this video and the audio podcast. So give us a shout. Yeah, so we want to make you a part of this conversation too. So if you have any questions for us, uh, do, uh, you know, send it over to us. Links in the socials for, um, you know, for Will and for myself. Absolutely. And if, if we have guests on, we're going to best... <laughs> So best be prepared, best be prepared. We're going to be oh, yeah. subjected to sharing some of these stories. And uh, again, this is what real talk is. And, uh, you know, when we come on, we, we want to tell our, tell our stories, tell our authentic stories and be our authentic selves, which I think is unfortunately becoming a little bit harder to, to do in, in many of our workplaces and many of our environments that always, you know, put us in a, uh, force us to be someone we're not to, to, to get to either get paid or to, to get by and, and we wanted to create this podcast for for everyone to be their authentic selves to share stories that they normally wouldn't tell to others um, in, a, in a safe space on that note we are going to close with our last segment the real talk closing rtc today's real talk will go to lj lj essentially in two or three minutes tell the masses what you're thinking about and what you want to close with 
and what you want to tell our audience and listeners about just how things are and, and, and be real with us. I'll try to make it quick, actually. I think I can. Um, one word, kindness. Um, and especially to yourself. Uh, for those who are caught in the humdrum of life, uh, in the pace, and, uh, you know, I can't imagine how maddeningly crazy it is for a lot of us in the time of a pandemic, you need to be kind to yourself. Um, you know, take the time to pause and uh, reflect on what you have and uh, just be kind to yourself and to those around you. Uh, I, I will admit I am, you know, I forget this all the time. Um, just the other day, for example, um, talk speaking about kindness to my physical well-being, I said to myself, I need to stop working after a certain time, like 6 or 7 p.m. Uh, unfortunately, as immigration lawyers, uh, you know that we have clients overseas and because of the time differences, obviously we have to adjust. But, you know, as a rule of thumb, I should be not working after a certain time because it's just not good for me. And... Um, you know, it really ultimately speaks about uh, the, uh, the 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 kind of like self care that uh, we need to uh, you know uh, pay attention to, especially in these trying times. Uh, so that's not just to us, and it's also to our family, to our friends, and uh, yeah, uh -huh. um, yeah. that's what I want to get across this week. Absolutely. And I'm just thinking about stories that my late father told me about being kind to every single person you meet. You don't know what they've been going through. I know these days, you know, when you're looking at, you know, either security guards or, or cleaners or those who work in hospitals. I mean, I've had to go to the hospital recently to, to, to make sure, you know, family health is okay. Uh, we've always uh, interacted with individuals we know are, are, are putting their lives on the line literally for, for others. And, you know, during COVID, it's been the caregivers, it's been the, uh, PSNs, it's been a lot of these uh, individuals, many of who are, are migrant women of color, migrant persons of color, uh, and we want to give them a huge shout out and, and, and ask everyone to be kind to them uh, and for them as well uh, to hopefully uh, find some respite uh, in this very, very trying time and, and thank our frontline workers and thank them uh, really deeply from the bottom of our hearts. So that is a wrap on the first episode of In Light of All Circumstances. Our short form name is In Light. Our socials are going to be at In Light. In Light's going to come to you every week. Uh, we're aiming to set uh, post episodes of about five minutes each every week. And from time to time, we'll be, uh, you know, coming in together, Will and I, where we'll be talking about uh, specific issues in depth. And we're going to talk about these things in light of all circumstances. Mm -hmm. We're really excited to see all of you. For those who want to appear on our show as guests, or if you have any recommendations, please add us. Please let us know. We'll put our socials and our contact information uh, and make it available after the show. Let us know what uh, topics you'd like us to discuss as well. And Will, I'll leave it to you. Uh, last thoughts, last words. Well, thank you and gratitude to all those who listen uh, thank you to all those who are going through the immigration process and, and are sharing their concerns and challenges. I know we hear it and we hear you. Uh, and again, I just want to heed LJ's last words and his um, speech about kindness. Let's all be kind to each other this week. And we are excited to see you on our next episode. See ya.